We're going to continue to worship the Lord by turning in his uh, gospel, the gospel of Mark. And I draw your attention to Mark chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 17 through 31. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who were first will be last, and the last will be first. Amen. Will you bow with me? Our Father, we turn our hearts again to your word, and we pray that you would give insight into it. How can a man or woman keep his way pure? By delighting upon your word. Father, your word is sweeter than honey. Honey from a honeycomb. Your word is a sure foundation for our lives and our souls. And I pray that your spirit would open our eyes. May we see its beauty. May it have its way with us this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago when we looked at uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, Jesus uh, brought up the uh, image or images of hell. Uh, hell as a real final and eternal destination for those who do not trust in the person and work of Jesus. And it makes sense to me that today we would sort of get a glimpse of the opposite, right? We don't believe that all are condemned to hell. We believe that some will gain eternal life, so to speak, and some will enter into the kingdom of God, and some will store treasure in heaven by coming to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Now, we're going to move to what I think is a theme of the text, 
but I really think it's helpful to see the overarching theme of the text. Did you notice how our text begins? It begins with a question, a question asked by a man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you notice how our passage ends? I mean, our passage ends with Jesus speaking about the age to come, eternal life. Did you notice how often the, the words kingdom of God show up in our text? It's three different times. Did you notice the, the word heaven in our text? That we can actually store treasure in heaven. And so before we move to what I think we're being warned against, it's really helpful to step back and say, well, what's at stake here? It's eternal life. And John defines eternal life as knowing the Father and knowing the Son whom he sent. And what Jesus is unpacking for us is when we come into that saving knowledge of the Father and the Son, we're brought into the kingdom of God by the Spirit and something beautiful happens. Though our feet are on this earth, we are now citizens of heaven, and what we do now can echo into eternity. What we do now, we can earn treasure in glory, that we can store up treasure there where the angels are, where the Father is, where the Son is, even though we're on this earth. And when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there's going to be a reversal. Many who were first in this life are going to be sent to the back of the line. And many who were at the back of the line in this life are going to be pushed to the front. There's going to be a reversal. That's what the passage is about. Eternal life is in the balance. That future with Jesus is in the balance. The hope for home that we long for is in the balance. And what we meet in this passage are things that can trip us up. Some things that can threaten that future and present hope. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, and then we start to hear, you mean to tell me that I can be running the race and get tripped up? Or I can have my heart so ensnared by the things of the world that these things out here that could be mine are forfeited because of how we live here and now. That's kind of the weight of the passage. What can possibly compete with knowing and trusting and savoring and depending and needing and longing for Jesus. What can possibly drive a wedge between our heart's deepest longings that will make us forfeit that reality? That's what the passage is about. And I think Mark shows us in scene one, we're introduced to a serious threat to the kingdom that deceives us. Mark tells us that a man ran up to Jesus. Now, when you read Mark and Matthew and Luke, we understand that this isn't just an ordinary man. Luke tells us, Luke 18 tells us that this man is a ruler. 
Now, the word ruler is kind of generic in Luke. And so we don't know. This could be a ruler of a synagogue. It could be some type of political figure. It could be some type of military leader. It could be a prince. We don't know because it's generic, but, but this is a ruler. And here is what Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us, and he's young. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that he's wealthy. He has great possessions. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very dangerous triad. When you see power, wealth, success, coupled with you're young, just go look at what we see flushing itself out in Hollywood. It's a train wreck when someone gets all of this at that age. And so this isn't your ordinary guy that's running up to Jesus. And did you know how that what Mark says? It says he ran up to Jesus. And then it says he knelt and fell on his face before Jesus. And so I'm reading this and I'm thinking, Oh, brother, this is starting out really good. And then he starts to talk. And he calls Jesus good teacher. Now, Jesus does something. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. And please, and I've heard people, uh, black Hebrew Israelites will say that, wait a minute, Jesus is denying his divinity. No, he's not. What Jesus is doing is trying to tease this man out. Jesus is letting us know that this man is only viewing him as a good teacher, and he's not viewing him as a good God. And so Jesus starts to kind of not play with him, but he's trying to sort of dig in there and say, hey, do you really see me for who I really am? And the answer is not, right? And then the guy starts to talk. He asks Jesus a beautiful question what must I do to gain eternal life? And so on some level, this man wants communion with God. This man wants to live forever in the new heavens and the new earth, but there's a problem. He asks Jesus, what must I do to get it? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read it, I'm thinking, all right, I get it. This dude is rich, and he's young, and he's successful, and he's powerful. And so my guess is he's thinking that everything he's done in the world translates over into the kingdom because I've been successful. I've been killing it, Jesus. Do you know who I am? I have dotted every I, crossed every T. I have set my goals on succeeding, and I have done it. And he naturally thinks that because he has this kind of success in the world, Jesus, just tell me what to do. Don't you know who I am? I can do it. And then he asks the question that I think is kind of foolish. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word inherit, by definition, it means to gain something of value that you did not earn. I think this calls our attention to Brian's sermon last week where he says the kingdom of God, in order for us to be a part of it, we have to receive it 
like children. And what we get in the next passage is an old child who has all the wealth and health and, and success, and he's trying to work his way in, and he's failing to see that unless you become like a child and receive, you cannot enter. Why is he deceived? Why can't he see Jesus as a good God and not just a good teacher? Why is he missing trusting and resting in Christ? Because while he outwardly is saying and doing the right things, there's some things at another undisclosed location that has his heart. Did you catch that? Outwardly, he's saying the right stuff. But did you notice what Jesus said to him? He says, okay, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then you come and follow me. Go run to your secret stash. Go to the home that you aren't showing me and put it on the market. And, and the cars, the multiple cars in your garages, go and sell them and, and put them on Auto Trader. And all of your sneakers that you have in your closet still in the boxes that you still wipe down every single time you wear them, go pull them out of the closet and go put them on StockX and sell them. And call your financial planner and tell him you want to cash out. And take every single thing you have and be like the man in the, pa in the parable in Matthew that considers a field that has the treasure and you sell everything you have to get the treasure. You go do that and then you come and you follow me and you will be a disciple. And did you notice what the text says? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's not so much that he had great possessions. It's that his possessions had him. Now, how do we know? Look at verse 24. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, in verse, 20, verse 24, Jesus clarifies it. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is. And on top of my is, there's a number two. And if you look at, the, at number two at the bottom to see what number two means, it says some manuscripts add for those who trust in their riches. And so in other words, it's not just having riches. Jesus is clarifying it. It's when we have them and we trust in them and they have our hearts. The reason why Jesus can't, the, the man can't trust Jesus is because the man is trusting in what he has. His wealth and his possessions and his status, they, they, they bring him a sense of identity. They bring him a sense of security. They bring him a sense of purpose. My life is equal to the amassing of the most things, and he who has the most things wins. He who has the most things are favored. His wealth, his possessions, they have him. And rather than lay hold to Jesus, 
this rich man went home to rags. Now, as we read this passage, there's a wrong way to read it. And the wrong way to read it is to point the finger at the rich man. That if we, if you have read this passage and you haven't thought, what are you saying to me, Jesus, about my relationship with possessions? If you've been kind of tuned out because I'm going through the text and it's not dawn on you that the text is about us, then we're missing it. Tim Keller, I, I will point you to two books. This is one of the most important books I think that has been written ever. And it's called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power. And the only hope that matters. And this one, this is a biblical theology of possessions. And these, these, this author goes through and traces from Genesis when Adam and Eve were first deceived by possessing something. And what you see as a result of their sin is this bent and proclivity in all of our hearts to want something other than God. Keller went on to say when he taught a series on the seven deadly sins that him and his wife were praying and talking about it. And you know the seven deadly sins, gluttony, pride, um, greed, uh, lust. I mean, you know the seven. But greed was one of the seven. And him and his wife had a suspicion that on the day that he taught about greed, it would be the least attended Saturday service for men. And they were right. Men showed up to hear about lust. Men showed up to hear about rage. Men showed up to hear about gluttony. And the one that was the most least attended was when he talked about greed. And it was not because it was a holiday. He says, that is how greed works. He says, no one at that point had ever scheduled a meeting with him to talk about how much money and time I spend on myself. They'll meet and talk about pornography. They'll meet and talk about their spouses. They'll meet and talk about their need for parenting. They'll meet about all these things. And he said, up until that day, not one single person ever in his ministry ever set up a meeting to talk about creed. And he says, that's the nature of it. It deceives us and it betrays us and it hides itself from us. And he goes on to say, how can something like this happen? He says, because something powerful so happens sociologically. He says, think about where you live and where your children go to school and where you work and where you shop and where you go to the grocery store. And he says, there's this power that's around us that we're socially conditioned 
that all of a sudden we live next door to somebody who has three cars, and so we kind of assume that, oh, that's, that's just kind of the standard, right? We live next to people who might have one or two extra houses, and we start to think, oh, that's just kind of the standard. Or we wear these certain things or drive these certain things or our houses look this certain way or we spend our money this certain way. And all of the time, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. We're comparing ourselves to people who live where we live. And all of a sudden, we're lowering the standard. We're lowering the standard. We're excusing certain things that don't need to be excused. We're permitting certain things that that don't need to be permitted. And all the while, we are not marching to the drumbeat of how God says we should spend money. And he says, all it takes is a healthy dose of how the rest of the world lives. He says, It's when we see outside of the circles that blind us that things start to come into focus. And so another man by the name of Kenneth Bailey, he's a pastor and was in the Middle East. He's an American. But he says one in four people live below the poverty line. Two million children die every year from preventable diseases. And Americans spend twice as much money on cut flowers than we do for their relief. We spend five times as much money on our pets than we do on missions. We spend two times as much money on taking clean water to other places than we do on caring for our skin. We spend 1.5 times that amount on chewing gum. We spend seven times the amount of moving the gospel to the ends of the earth than we do on sweets. We spend 26 times what we spend on missions on sports. And he goes on to say, this should not surprise us. When you look how the average non-professing believer spends his money and how professing believers spend their money, you will notice no noticeable difference. Scott Saul says over half the world's population lives on $2.50 a day. This means that he spends more on coffee that most living image bearers spend in their lifetimes. He says, our homes, even the meager 700-square-foot ones, they have a name to the poor in the world, and that name is mansion. Keller goes on to say, the rest of the world is not fooled. When they come to visit America, They are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. You see, when Jesus says many who are first will be last and her last will be first, I think he's telling us that there is some poor woman 
in some country with a gross national product and a gross domestic product that is nothing. And she's going to get in front of the line in the kingdom. She's a nobody to us. She doesn't have anywhere to lay her head. She doesn't have enough money for a funeral. But she trusts her some Jesus. And Jesus is saying, be mindful. And so please, don't, don't let this deflect and go out of your heart. I actually think because we live where we live, we got to be mindful of it. Even the poorest amongst us. We're in the wealthiest country in the world. And that has to mean something. Now, here's the second thing I think the text does is it it, it reminds us how we're delivered from this threat. We need help. And what we see is that Jesus is willing to give it. The second point is the sincere love of the king that can deliver us. The sincere love of the king. There's a real threat, a serious threat that deceives us, but we have to see Jesus as this sincere and loving king who wants to reach down and to rescue people who will be given over to loving their possessions more than they love him. Did you notice what happens, what Mark read in verse 21? And it's only in Mark. Only Mark says this. Mark says, and Jesus, looking at this rich young man, looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. So if you're wealthy and you have an abundance of possessions, please know that my posture is not shame on you. That if we look at this passage, how Mark wants us to see it, Jesus looks at this man and says, I love you and I care for you and you are worth stopping to spend time with because I want you to be in the family of God. And then I think what we see in Mark's gospel, we see what love looks like. Did you notice what it says? He looked at him and he loved him. Well, what is love? On one level, it's Jesus on some journey who stops and who actually engages the person. He lets this man interrupt his journey. That's loving. But what's even more loving in the passage, did you notice how much it says, and Jesus said, 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 it's like six or seven times, and, and I don't think we're supposed to divorce the two. I think what we're supposed to say is teaching is a labor of love to Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is doing a whole lot of teaching because there is a whole lot of loving. And the question is, what is the most loving thing for Jesus to teach the man? It's the word of God. Can we just like stop right there for a minute and and hear that? 
Jesus asked a man, what does the commandment say? You know them. And what does he say? He goes on and he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, when the man is asking about eternal life, Jesus beelines where? To Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He puts this man in front of the word of God, particularly the Ten Commandments. Now, those commands are the last six. The first four commandments teach us how to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these last six teach us how to love neighbor. But there's a difference here. Honor your father and mother should be first. And in our passage, it's last. And the one that should be last is do not covet. It's changed to do not defraud. And we don't know why Jesus did it. There are suspicions out there that some think that maybe Jesus is identifying how the man got his wealth. Maybe he has gotten wealth and has gotten ahead because he has defrauded people. And maybe his mom and dad is in on it. I don't know. But it makes sense to me. That if Jesus tells the man, go sell it all because you've gotten it all illegally. And then you come back and follow me. And did you notice what happened with the man? Jesus put the word on him that was meant to drive him to inadequacy and inability. That was meant to drive him to cry out to Jesus that I can't do it. I need you. And instead, because the man was trusting in his riches and had great possessions, the man walked away sorrowful. He chose that hour. He chose his wealth over Jesus. And if he never repented, he spends eternity apart from Jesus and it's not because Jesus didn't love him. Now, did you notice that Jesus did the same thing for the disciples? It actually says, look at verse 23, and he looked around. Same thing he said in verse 21 about the man. He looked at the man and loved him and said, it says in verse 23, he looked around and he doesn't have to say he loved them because it's assumed. That teaching is a labor of love. He looked at his disciples and loving them, and he then said to them, and notice he did not go back and quote an Old Testament passage. You know what he quoted? Something that's in the New Testament that we're reading right here and right now. And you know what he said? I'm telling you, on God, it's difficult for a person who trusts in wealth to enter the kingdom. And I'll say it again, it's difficult, it's impossible. And he takes a, the, one of the largest animals they would have known in their day. And he says, you see that large camel? And you see this small needle, this eye of a needle. A wealthy person who trusts in their riches has that kind of chance of entering into the kingdom if this camel could go through the eye of this needle. 
And notice how the disciples respond. What did they say? It says that they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved, right? And Jesus says, you're right. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. In other words, the word of God did what it was supposed to. Jesus put the word on them, and they saw their inability, and they saw their inadequacy, and they put their hands up. Jesus, can nobody get saved? And Jesus says, aha, I got you where I want you. You see your inability, and where your power stops, ah, that's where God begins. He's going to do the impossible. And how do we know he did the impossible? Because Peter says, we left it all. We left mothers and fathers. The disciples were tax collectors. They were in the, some of them were in the upper echelon of society. They left the fishing boat, the family business to follow Jesus. Now, the question is why? Why did they do that? It was not because they were wise. It was because God whooped in and took them. Now, why does all of this matter? Because if great possessions threaten us and blind us and deceive us, then Jesus seems to know that what we need most to free us from that is not regular advice from a friend. What we need most is the Word, the Word of God. Jesus knows that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. He knows that it will pierce the heart and penetrate through bone and marrow. He knows that the written Word of God is a living, powerful force, and what he does in the passage is to pull it out. Now, there's a reason I have Frankie uh, read from Isaiah 55. Remember how that passage starts? It says, come, buy food from me and you don't need money. And why do you go out and chase after bread that does not satisfy? That's Isaiah saying the kingdom of God is free and your money can't buy you into it. And did you notice how it goes right from that? To my word will come down and it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. And what Jesus is doing in Mark, he is using the word of God to go down and to sever their hearts from trust so that they might receive the kingdom like children. And therefore, it's dangerous for me, for us, not to talk about money. It's dangerous for you to not read about money. We need the word of God that tells us that though we amass billions, we will die like the rest of mankind and stand before our maker. We need the word of God that tells us that our possessions cannot buy eternity. We need the word of God that tells us that we came into the world with nothing and you're going to leave this world with nothing. And there is no such thing as a U-Haul on the back of a hearse. I know because I just did a funeral this Wednesday and I didn't see it and you'll never see it. Ain't nobody stuffing nothing in a casket but your body. 
We're not taking it with us. We need to hear that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We need to hear that this rich man walked away because he was in love with his possessions. Why do we need to hear that over and over and over and over again? To bring us on our knees. The word of God points this out. Jesus talks more about money than he does about lust. He talks more about money than he does about hell. we got to hear that. But we need more than just conviction. Conviction drives us away from trusting. But we need the living word, right? To heal us. Did you notice that Mark says in verse 17 that he was setting out on his journey? You should underline journey. Because it makes us ask the question, where's he coming from? And where's he going? You, you got to, I mean, every journey has a, a starting point and it has a destination. And when you look at Mark's gospel, here is what Mark is saying. Where Jesus is journeying is to the cross. That's where he's on the way. He's on his way south so he can go down in Jerusalem and, and, and die. And where did Jesus come from? It was not just in Bethlehem. We believe what he writes, what Paul writes, that for our sake, he was rich and he became poor that we in him might become rich towards God. In other words, Jesus' beginning was not in Bethlehem. It was at the right hand of the Father. And it was in glory with all things that were his. And the Bible says a divine impoverishing happens. That this one who owns all things, who upholds all things, who has all things, who has all the riches, he made them, that he set those things aside and entered into a mission of poverty where he abased himself and humbled himself where he was born in a manger, where the Son of Man did not have a single house. He did not have anywhere to lay his head, that he humbled himself in utter poverty so that he might do what? Go to a cross as a poor man who didn't even have a casket. Someone else had to come and get his body and to pay for it to be buried so that you and I could be made rich. Here's the thing. Money tells us you're secure. You're safe. It's your identity. It's your purpose. And Jesus says, all the things we look for in possessions are ultimately found in him. You want real security? It's not in your job. It's in the one who holds your life, who will never leave you nor forsake you. You want real purpose? You want real treasure? You want real meaning? 
it's wrapped up in the one who would give up every single thing he was entitled to, to bring you to him. Your identity, if you are a believer, is not in what you own. It's in who owns you. And we're moved by that. When we find that rest in him, we're delivered. We're delivered. And it means we come back to this truth over and over again. And maybe you're here this morning and you're trusting in your wealth, your success, the way you dress, where you live, what you drive. I'm here to say it's going to disappoint you. It's going to betray you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And you might be here and you're a believer. And my heart gets entrapped with this stuff, y'all. I'm not above this. It's good to read this because it reminds me that whatever happens, I'm his and he's mine. Which leads us to our last point. The sure blessings of the kingdom. Peter says we left everything. And this is another episode where Peter is actually right. They did. He left everything because God did the impossible, which leads us to ask the question, how then will they eat and be cared for? And this is not an excuse to be lazy, right? It's not sort of a let go and let God, I'm going to kick my feet up and not do nothing because God's going to give me some houses and I'm going to name it. No, 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 this don't work like that. Like we are in cooperation, right? We get up and work trusting that he will be faithful to provide. And when things get shaky, we trust that he's going to still be faithful to provide. But, but, but did you notice what Jesus says in verse 29? Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold and underline now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. And it's going to be mixed with persecutions because we're not home yet. And when the age comes, the new age, the dawn of the kingdom, eternal life. Jesus is telling us that he'll provide. And man, how I wish the rich young ruler would have stayed behind to hear that. Because the call away from wealth is not just a call to leave. It's a call to let God be responsible to give you what you need. That's what I want. I want a big God who covenants himself to me who says, I move in your favor. I will go before you and I will give you what you need. You don't have to do this alone. And I think Jesus has already done this. You remember Mark chapter 6? When Jesus told the disciples, he sent them out two by two. And he says, go out, preach the gospel. And then Jesus says, and this is what I want you to take with you. Y'all remember what Jesus said, take with him? He said, don't take no extra tunic. 
Don't take no extra sandal. Don't take an extra belt. Don't take bread. And when you go to a house and preach the gospel, they will let you in. And if you get to a house and preach the gospel and they won't let you in, you shake off the dust of your feet and you keep it moving because a house down the street is going to let you in. And then what happened? It said they went away and many people believed the gospel and many people healed. And guess what? They ate and didn't miss a meal and didn't need money. Why? Because Jesus says, I got you. Doesn't this sound like Exodus when they came out of Egypt? And what did God give them? He gave them manna daily, and he gave them quail, and he gave them water out of rocks, which is Christ. Isn't this just like our God to say, you trust me, and I got you. I got you. And it might be scary, but I got you. Y'all, this is so personal to me. Can I, can I testify for a little bit and I'm going to get us out of here? Before I was a pastor, I worked as an engineer with GE Aircraft Engines. And I thought I had made it. I really did. And I got a check stub in my wallet from one of my last checks just to make sure I kind of remember and I remember hearing about Redeemer being started. And I remember hearing about going to seminary to be a pastor. And what you don't know is my wife had just graduated from pharmacy school May the 1st. We got married May 15th. And then I had to, we had to wrestle through June 15th. I'm finna quit my job with my new wife and talk to her mama like, mama, we finna move to Jackson and I don't have a job and I'm finna be a student again and I don't even know where we gonna live. What? And I remember talking to Bryant Taylor about Brian. I gotta stay. I gotta work. And he said, Junior. And this is how he said, Junior. Who you think ultimately providing for you? I said, me. I'm, I'm the one getting up going to work. He said, I'm gonna ask you again, Junior. Like, who you think is ultimately providing for you? And I got it. God was. And we prayed, and we fasted, and I gave my two weeks. And she didn't have a job. We didn't even have a house. And when we moved here, Walgreens called her, offered her a job. When we moved here, the house next door where the basketball is became available, and we moved into it. And when I had to do RUF and raise $90,000 a year for nine years, I told Bebo Elk, and Bebo, I can't do it. And he says, I'm not asking you to do it. Bebo, I don't know any wealthy people in my family. And he says, but God got wealthy people in his family. And do you know we never missed a check? Not one. And when we didn't have money to take vacation, you know, people sent us, 
hey, we got this house and it's available. Do y'all want to go? We're there like yesterday, brother, right? <laughs> and when we had the persecutions that you see in this passage, we had people driving hours. And I didn't tell him to come. And he's sitting on my couch in tears who just wants to love me. And there are people who are praying over my wife. And I know some of y'all are thinking, Pastor L, you get all of that treatment because you're a pastor. And I'm going to say, no, I don't. I get that because I'm Jesus's. You follow him and trust him. He's a faithful, faithful, faithful provider. You might lose your job. He's a faithful provider. Things might not work out like you think they're working out. He's a faithful provider. And I'd encourage us to be thinking not just about receiving this, but being this. In a church like this, there are people in college who have very little. And they might need to come wash some clothes at your house. There's some single moms in our midst who need advocates, who are entrenched and involved in their lives. This is Jesus' promise. Trust me, not riches. And I got you. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you. We love you. We thank you for the good news of your word. Father, I pray that as we reflect upon it, that you would allow it to be something that is sweet and beautiful, challenging. All at the same time, would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.